0: We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8 this morning. Uh, Early this morning, my wife Carmen, I was looking at my sermon notes. She said, how's the sermon? And I said, I don't know. It's never the same twice, and I'm not sure before if it's decent or not. That's just kind of the way it is. Uh, But I said, you know, it will be good because we're heading to the communion table. So even if it's terrible, it will end well. Why are we getting to the communion table? Well, in some ways, every single text of the Scripture is heading toward the communion table. Because what we see in the the Lord's Supper, in the communion table, is the Savior who gave himself for us and is enthroned and gives himself to us now. And that's the ultimate uh, direction every Scripture is pointing. So therefore, we end our sermons with the table because it celebrates Jesus who gave and who gives himself for us and who is the exalted one on our behalf. And so that's, that's, the, that's the lens through which we see all scriptures, including the Old Testament. And we've been in the Old Testament for several weeks and we'll be in the Old Testament for several more as we look at the history of our spiritual family and show the, the kind of dysfunctional history of our spiritual family. Because Israel in the Old Testament, they make a lot of bad moves and I think we see, like we'll see in this text today, we have a lot of Israel in us as well. And that same Savior stands ready to give himself to us in grace as, uh, as we point to him, as the Scripture is pointing to him. Probably like several of you, my wife and I spent some of our quarantine time watching the Netflix special, The Queen's Gambit. Anybody watch The Queen's Gambit? Anybody play more chess because of The Queen's Gambit or thought they might? Yes? online chess and all that. It's the story of Beth Harmon. And, um, you know, Beth is this young uh, female child prodigy in the male-dominated chess scene of the 1960s. And you know she's going to do well when there's these times in her her chess career when she can, in her imagination, look up on the ceiling and see the chess moves going. And she can see ahead a few moves. And the the more she can do that, you know that she's going to do well. I do think, and I I think it's the case that she was always high when she was doing that, though. I think she was, it's a drug-induced problem. But anyway, um, so I can't recommend that wholeheartedly. Uh, there it is. Uh, now, Beth Harmer was not a real person. Right? It was made-up. It was kind of like, what What if, uh, you know... Uh, uh, there was a ch- female child prodigy in, in the 1960s. But she was made up roughly from the life of Bobby Fisher, who was a child prodigy of chess. From he uh, think he won the championship when he was 14 in 1958 and then on through the 60s. And uh, Fisher said he could look at a board for about five seconds and know the next five or six n- moves need to be made. I'm still getting the orientation of, am I black or white here? Uh, and... Uh, And then we read that that grandmasters, if they can study a board for for 10 or 20 minutes, can see sometimes 12 to 15 to 20 moves ahead. Now, I don't know if that's real or not because that's a lot of intuition, but uh, nobody can know the whole board. Nobody can know all of the moves of a chess game. Because from the beginning, there are a particular number of moves in a chess game, and it is There's a number for it. It's called Shannon's number and named after a mathematician who figured this out in the 1920s or 1930s that there are 10 to the 120th power possible moves in a chess game from the beginning. Now, for you non-math people, that's a big number. How big is it? It is suggested that in the known universe, there are 10 to the 81st power of atoms. There are 10 to the 120th power potential moves on a chessboard from the beginning. So there are more, according to Shannon, there are more potential moves in a chess game from the beginning than there are atoms in the universe by an astronomical, I mean, that's exponential difference, 10 to the 81st to, times 10 to the, or versus 10 to the 120th. It's just, it's huge, right? It's, it's not even comprehensible. There's a lot of moves. Nobody can know all those moves. But what a grand master does is is he or she will see far enough ahead to to be engaged, freely engaged in a game with someone else, but all the while moving that game to the appointed end, which is the victory of that grand master, by seeing ahead a few moves. Now, I'm going to completely say there are 100 theological and philosophical problems with saying God is a grand chess master. I totally get that, right? So, I'm not saying that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. However... We do see in the scripture over and over again and in this passage, God is He enters the story, he freely engages with the characters, and he moves the story to an appointed end. And he's infinitely wise. And he sees the end from the beginning, and he's able to fold all kinds of things into that appointed end of him winning. But what is the win? What is the win of the God of the Bible? We see over and over again in that, that it is. To do good to his people and to bring himself glory. And in this passage, we even say see that he's able to fold in even our own sin and rebellion into his plan to do good to us and to glorify himself. It's remarkable. We've been going through the uh, Old Testament, looking at the high points in this sermon series. The story to this point, if you remember, the children of Israel are brought out of slavery in Egypt. They're brought into the wilderness for 40 years. God leads them into the promised land. And right before he comes, they go into the promised land. Well, not right before. But when they're in the wilderness, God tells them this in Deuteronomy 17. I put this in your insert here. It's at the top. Yeah, good. It's at the top of your insert. Deuteronomy 17, he says... When you, uh, this is Moses, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king. So one day, God says, it will be permissible for you to do this, to have a king. It's not a command to have a king. He's just saying, I will allow you to do that at some point in the future, should you request of me and it would be a good time, I will do that. You can do that. But until that time, as Taylor mentioned last week, Israel was governed by judges. Judges were people who were leaders who were, in military they were, in, in wartime they were military leaders, in peacetime they were more like judges like we think about judges today. They brought wisdom to bear on situations for the community. They made rulings when there were disputes. And the judges, from what we can tell in Israel, were organized on a tier-based system where each town and area had a judge, and then you go up, you got the appellate courts and the circuit courts and whatever. And at the top, there's the chief judge, if you will. And these are names that you know, like Gideon, Samson, Deborah, Barak, these guys. The last judge in the history of Israel is Samuel. Samuel. And so we are today at that point in the history of our spiritual family where they moved from judges to having kings. And we're going to see today that it was, not a, it was a rough launch sequence. They did it, but it was, a, it was a sinful move, a sinful desire that they had. And Samuel's involved in it. So Samuel's the last judge. Samuel also is in the office of a prophet. So he's the one that speaks to God speaks, and speaks to the people on behalf of God. Okay, so how did this come about? If you turn over on the back of your insert here to 1 Samuel 12, this is after the fact, Samuel narrating why this was a problem. So in 1 Samuel 12, he's recounting the history. He's like, you know, Jacob went to Egypt, verse 6 or verse 8, and the Egyptians oppressed them. Then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and he delivered them. Going on a little bit farther in 9, he's, so Samuel skips a bunch of stuff. Remember when I brought you into the promised land, and Sisera... You know, uh, you forgot the Lord, and I raised up Sisera, and he began overwhelming you. In verse 10, what did they do? They cried out to the Lord, and what happened? The Lord rescued them. So what happens in the history of Israel is like they, uh, they get in trouble, they cry out to the Lord, he rescues them, they go on for a while, another generation rises up that kind of forgets the Lord, and they kind of drift wayward, and they get overrun again, and they cry out to God, and he rescues them. It's just a cycle going on and on. Right before this, what happens Verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, so another enemy rises, we expect Samuel to say, you cried out to the Lord and he delivered you, but not this time. He says, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. So how did the kingship come about? Every time in the past you you got in trouble, you cried out to the Lord, you trusted him and he delivered you, and this time you said, we're kind of tired of that, we want a king instead. We're tired of having to trust God. We can't see. We want a king. We can see. That's the background of how all this thing comes about. So the context here, there's an enemy tribe, the Ammonites. They're growing in force. Israel feels vulnerable and threatened. And though God is more than capable, they want a king. They're afraid. And it's just a good point to stop and say fear And a desire for security, still for us today, is very fertile soil for very bad decisions. Fear and a desire for security is fertile soil for sin, folly, rebellion, bad decision-making. We know this, right? We know this in our own life. I know this in my own life. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old he made his sons judges over israel the bible has very little bad things to say about samuel he's a very faithful person in fact in 1 samuel 3:19 it says not one of samuel's words fell to the ground that means people didn't ignore anything samuel said I've been preaching for five minutes, you, most of you heard like 20% of what I said. Why? Because like 80% of my words just fall to the ground. Blah, there it is, right? So none of Samuel's words fell to the ground. He was used by God. In the words he said, they, he was faithful, they were valuable. He was a good, faithful prophet of God, a good, faithful judge of God. Maybe the only negative thing the Scripture in, uh, talks about with Samuel was that he was blind to the character of his own children, at least two of them. Now, we all think our kids are just a little bit better than everybody else's. We don't say that, of course, only in joking, but when we're not really joking, right? My kid's special. Um, And not special that way, but really special. Uh, We're blind to the character of our own children. It's because we love them. Samuel was no different. And he apparently set them up as sort of this junior circuit court. Verse 2, the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. That is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 16, 19 of what a judge must not do. Turn aside after gain, take bribes, and pervert justice. And the writer of Samuel is saying, this is exactly what the sons of Samuel were doing. Now, there's a tradition that says, actually Samuel is the writer of 1 Samuel. So, after the fact, he may be saying, like, my kids so good. So this is just as an aside here. This is a sobering thing as a parent, maybe discouraging, maybe encouraging. Let me just be real for a second. Samuel was a good, faithful man. Not one of his words fell to the ground. At least two of his kids were wayward. We live in a technological society that kind of believes there's a technique and a way to do everything, and if you do this, and if you do this, and if you do this, this will happen. If you do A, B, and C, D will happen. Sometimes you do A, B, and C, and X happens. That's reality. That may be very encouraging to you. That may be very threatening to you, whatever, right? The Lord is working in the life of our own kids, sometimes through us, sometimes in spite of us, right? That's... That's from the text, but not in the text. But I think we need to be realistic about that. Okay, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Now, he had like 20 years left. He wasn't that I mean, maybe he was old. but um, And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. So the tribal leaders got together, they conferred, and they came to Samuel because they saw the writing on the wall. Samuel, you're not going to last forever, and probably one of your two sons is going to take your place. Neither of them are good options. And I think what they should have done, what would happen in the rest of history, because Samuel was also a prophet, they should have come to Samuel and said, can we be honest? Your sons are not fulfilling Deuteronomy 16, 19 mandates of what judges should be. Could you please inquire of the Lord and see what he says? Instead, they dictated terms to Samuel and said, you give us a king. But he's the, shouldn't, he, shouldn't you ask the prophet to inquire of the Lord? They were tired of that. You give us a king. They were more interested, I think, in structuring a system that freed them from the burden of trusting the Lord. It's easier to trust a king you can see than a God you cannot see. Even if that God you cannot see, when you trust him, delivers you every single time as he had. They still found it easier to trust a king that you can see. Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. So why was he displeased? Well, partly it was the implicit rejection of him. We don't want you, Samuel, and we don't want your decisions, which were to have your sons. And probably he understood that there was some faithlessness going on, as it goes on to say in verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, no, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. They have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So God calls out their real motive here. He says, they don't want me reigning as a king over them in the way I see fit, which to that point had been this. He would set them apart from the nations in that they wouldn't have a king. They would be set apart as a people who had access to a God they could trust and run to and call on who would deliver them every single time. That's how they were set apart. And they could no longer bear living by faith. And so we've got to live by sight. Now, by the way, when we think about, think about Israel in the Old Testament being a nation, the New Testament corollary to that is not any nation we know of today, like America or Argentina or Bhutan or whatever. Like, it's, it's the church. That's the correct way to read the Bible, the Old Testament Israel is the New Testament church. That's the that's the way to understand that movement, not like don't put America in there, right? Um They uh, just as an aside, I there used to the National Day of Prayer used to quote quote second chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven and heal their land, say God will heal America if we pray. That's just not how the Bible works. So America is just a country, just a country, maybe a great country, whatever. It's just a country. It's not the nation of God's people. It's a nation where God's people live, as is everywhere, even places like Russia. But it's just a country, right? Um, And he says, let them have their king. But I want you to give them this prophetic message about what a king will be like. And this phrase, the ways of the king, probably mean the ways of all the kings that will come. And, in fact, most of the kings that did come in history after this were the same way. They were not good. And so God gives them what they want, but it's not great. It should give us a little pause to acknowledge that God, just because God answers prayer or fulfills a desire, is not always a good thing. Sometimes God gives us what we want to train our hearts not to want the wrong thing to train our hearts away from wanting something because we get what we're like, oh, I want this, and the Lord grants it, and we're like, this is pretty bad. I don't want this at all. Why would God give this to me? To train us what we want and don't want. Sometimes it's a gift, right? It's It's a discipline, but this is what he does here. You want this, you don't really want this. Oh, we want this. Fine, you can have it. Eventually you will say, we don't want this. It will make them not long for a human king which was the whole point. So Samuel speaks to the people about what the ways of kings will be like. And I want you just to listen to this as good Bible readers, listeners. You know, anytime in a biblical narrative where a phrase is repeated a few times, you say, oh, I wonder if this is intentional. And it's intentional. So just listen. I won't make it hard for you. So Samuel told all of the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for him, a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take says it six times. He will take and take and take and take and take and take. I have five. I can discount it. And take six times. He will take. And you will become his slaves. Now, not literally, none of the kings of Israel or to actually enslave the people, but they were enslaved to the desires of the one they had to reign over them, as we are. There's no different. And this, um, as an aside here, whether right or wrong, this is often a biblical reason advocating for limited government when possible. You may not agree with that. I'm just telling you, several people will make that argument. This is a biblical reason advocating for limited government because when sinful men and women rule, they take, they take, and if we ask the government to do something or more or grow and utilize more resources, there's only one place for a government, be a Democratic government, or a kingship, or an oligarchy, to get those resources. The people, right? Or they can just print more money and get it from the people later. But they get it from the people. There's no way to not get when we ask the king to do more and to do more for us. He's like, okay, at your expense. That's how it has to happen. Now, no politician is going to campaign on those promises, right? I will make all these promises to you, and they're really promises to take more from you. Like, but. That's kind of what happens. It doesn't matter if you're left, right, center. That's all that happens. Um, I'm just telling you, that is an argument. I'm not saying it's the only one about government. It is one in Scripture. And Saul did this. Saul, the first king, did this. And Solomon did it a lot more. And so the people heard this from Samuel, who is the prophet of God, whose words never fell to the ground, said, you going to get these kings and because they're sinful, they're not going to rescue you. They're going to take. And the people said, oh, you know, that's a great point. We hadn't really thought of this all the way through. Thank you, Sa- uh, Samuel. We should have come to you earlier and thought this through. Thank you for inquiring the Lord and giving us this prophetic message. We withdraw our request. We don't want a king anymore. Thank you. You be the judge over us. Let's get this stuff with your, your sons worked out. Maybe appoint someone else. Maybe see what the Lord has. Great. We withdraw. Of course, that's not what they say, verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no. But there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations. This is the desire, that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want to be like all the other nations. There's one thing God kept saying to the people since they came out of Egypt, they were in the wilderness and going into the promised land is this. Please do not be like all the other nations in the place I'm sending you. Do not be like the Canaanites. They, they worship false gods. They sacrifice their children. They got all these twisted practices. Do not be like the nations. Do not be like the nations. I am your God. I've set you apart. And the people of Israel say, yeah, actually, we want to be like the nations right now. Why? They've got a king we can see. And it makes us feel vulnerable and insecure not to have a king we can't can't see. We feel exposed. Judge us. We'll have a king to judge us. So at that point, they were uh, probably determining, you know, the law was enforced by local judges. And there was probably some unevenness, right? And so a lot of theologians think what they were desiring here is like, one king who can make policy. It'll be good for everybody. The next, the next leader will be the one. Everything will be better with 2024 will be better, right? The one. Um, he'll go out before us. This is one who will be impressed that the other nations will see our king and be like, "Whoa, I don't know if we can mess with Israel. He's impressive. He'll be, he'll, be lead, he'll be, you know, always ready to lead militarily. It won't be like somebody attacks and we have to cry out to God and it's different every time. Yes, every time he does deliver us, but it's different every time and it makes us scared. We want a king who have a standing army ready to go. It makes us feel safer. Of the 43 kings mentioned in Israel and Judah, only five were good. And of those five, really only two were good, like, consistently and robustly. David who kind of wasn't that good either, and Josiah. So you could make the argument that the only decent king in Israel was a guy named Josiah, who came to the throne when he was eight years old. Right? Um, this, is a, this is not a healthy way of governing, but the people said, we want it because we can see it. Most did, uh, did actually make Israel like the other nations. It was what they wanted because they refused to tear down the the false worship places of the Canaanites, and some of them even rebuilt them and led the people's hearts away from the Lord. Most of those kings judged with self-serving judgments. Most of those kings did not uh, go out and lead their people into battle. They sent their people out into battle. As an aside, wouldn't it be great if world leaders today actually led their people into battle instead of sent them into battle? I think there would be less battles, seems to me, right? You didn't just, you know, give an executive order. You had to actually go. I bet there would be less war. Okay. Verse 21. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. For Samuel 9 then, there's no chapter breaks in the original. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So he was a head taller than most of the people, right? And he was handsome. Tall, handsome. What better leader to lead our nation? The other nations will say, wow, this guy is impressive. We we, we are scared of Israel. And Israel will be confident because this is a tall, handsome leader. The same value as all the other nations. And then Saul comes and Samuel anoints him. And Saul becomes the first king. Saul is the first king. Not to be confused by way with Saul the apostle. The apostle Paul is also named Saul. which is confusing. He comes 1,000 years after this king Saul. but So he's an apostle. Just, just so you know, those are different names. His, his Greek name was Paul. His Hebrew name was Saul. The apostle Paul. Okay, a couple application pathways here. That was the storyline. Now let's think about the author, the God who is in this, enfolding even the rebellion, as we'll see, into the good of the people. The God who was and who is and who will be tomorrow, the God who is our God, dealing with the people who still have some Israel in us. First of all, we have a king. We have a king. Our ancestors asked for a king who will take and take and take and take and take and take. What do we get? The word of the angel to Mary in Luke 1. I put this in your insert. We often read this at Christmas time. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. What is characteristic of Jesus to his people of King Jesus? He's a king who gives, and gives, and gives, and gives, and gives, and gives again. Do you know Romans 8.32? Indicating the attitude of God the Father toward you. Here's what it is. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It is not, it is not inappropriate to say a word that best describes the disposition of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to his people, a Central word, maybe the central word, is generous. And it may be good just to ask, do I believe, do you believe in your soul that God is generous to you? It makes a huge difference. And that he loves to be generous. He's not an unwilling generous God. He loves to be generous. He gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives some more. We have a king who's generous, guys. That's his disposition toward y'all, toward me. Second application, your longing for safety and security is still really fertile soil for really bad decisions. Sinful decisions, foolishness. I think if I can look back and see some of the most egregious things I've done in my life, there was some longing for some security or some safety or some comfort in that somehow, in the mix there. Trying to grasp somehow with force or with uh, rudeness or with power or with cunning, something otherwise God would gladly give if it were for my good. That's why we uh, we often quote the passage, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, Take care, brothers, sisters, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you away from the living God. But encourage each other every single day, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What is encouragement? Giving courage. It's, it's saying no to Fear. It's courage against something that would be fear-inducing. That's what courage is, encouraging. That's, the, that's why it's important to have friendships. That's part of the purpose of our community groups, to encourage each other. Not to say, oh, there's nothing to fear. Saying, yes, this may be big, but Jesus is bigger, and you're not in it alone. You have him, and you have us. That's what community is. We encourage each other daily, and this is pointed out as the thing that keeps God's people from falling away and being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because the things that induce fear aren't going away. And the instrument of fighting against fear are are each other and the gospel. And each other bringing the gospel to, to one another. We have a king longing for safety and security, still fertile soil for bad decisions. Number three, the motive of being like the nations is always toxic to the people of God. And I want to make the argument, it's also toxic to the nations. Israel wanted a security that came from no longer being set apart from the nations. We feel insecure and vulnerable because we're set apart. Their being set apart was their security. They wanted to give it up so they could be like the nations. So I want to just like a couple of uh, trailheads that are in this passage and in the background here. There's, of course, thousands of ways that we long to be like the nations still today. But there are a few trailheads that are that are begged for by this particular context. Uh, one is well, what they were doing. They were seeking hope and deliverance in the political structures of man. Right? We still do this. Right? I've, you know, I know in my own soul, I've talked to enough of you, like the last 10 years of our country have been Wild. Holy cow. And there is zero evidence to believe that in, you know, a couple years it will be any better. Or even this fall. It'd be mean, wild, right? We, you know, I've talked to so many people, I've experienced myself, they're so angry and disappointed and beside themselves and overcome because of the former president of the United States. And so many people who are beside themselves and angry and overcome because of the current president of the United States. Can I just suggest that some of that angst and anger and hostility is because we are putting our hope in a failed system <laughs> that's not a king? As we are, as Christians, we are monarchists. We believe in a monarchy first. A king who says in Psalm 2, all the leaders of the world should kiss the son lest he be angry with them and they perish in their way. None of them will kiss the sun; All of them will perish in their way and we will still have a king. Amen. So, you know, and I'm susceptible to this. There are podcasts I do not listen to because I agree too much with them. And after a couple weeks, I'm like, that's right. I hate this group of people. I am like, whatever. It's stupid, Roger. You have a king. All right, so I encourage you. if If you're really hostile to the thought of Donald Trump becoming president again, or if you're really hostile to the thought of Joe Biden being president, if you're really hostile, let me just say, you may be forgetting the fact that you have a king. This is, if you are newer, I almost never talk about politics, but like it's one, like the one time there. the year, there's, nobody, there's no election going on. If we can say it, right? God's people, wake up! You've got a king! Okay. Um, number the second pathway here, and that this happens over and over again in the history of Israel, it's just hard to believe. But it happens. The Canaanites sacrificed their own children to the god Molech in order to have a fruitful future and to be free. It is unbelievable. In fact, I think it's in Jeremiah or Ezekiel. One time God comes and says to the people, you did this. And He's it's anthropomorphic, but he said, that didn't even enter my mind that you would do that. What is wrong with you? Your children, this covenantal unit of the home, you're breaking it and sacrificing your children, actually burning them with fire because you think that you will get something from that. Oh my word. You're doing this so that you can be like the nations. It's It's a God's overwhelmed by this. And it does seem that one of the place of contrast is often with the people of God and how how do we we raise our children? What do we raise them to trust and value and be and do? It's been that way. It's that way now. I said in the first service, it's been maybe 16 years since my family was in, like, the, the depth of little kid raising. And if you are in the depth of little kid raising, here's what I want to say to you. One, it gets better and you eventually get more energy, right? Um, It may take a while, sorry. Uh, Two, there's been even, there's been tremendous change even the last 15 years in our culture with respect to children. So much so like just the the last two weeks, some of the stuff come out from the executive director of Disney. It's just like, no, we're going to try to corrupt your children, like, no, it's just out there now. Okay. I said, what we're doing? We're not, not going to hide it anymore. I'm like, oh, wow. This is. And I don't know. That's not necessarily a political statement for me. It's just like, wow, I guess it's just out there. We're going to talk about it plainly. We kind of always knew, of course. All you have to do is watch Disney shows to know that, that there's a lot of stuff in there, not even hidden. Um, and I am, by the way, that crusty parent. Anytime we watch a movie with our kids, we're like, oh, let's stop. Let's talk about the presupposition that's in that thing. Right? So I'm not saying you have to be that way. But please don't be naive. The covenantal unit called the family is certainly under attack. I'm not saying from the left or from the right. I'm saying from Satan, from the from the power structures of this world. It's not new. It's been, back in Jeremiah. God saying, "What are you guys thinking?" It never entered my mind. Hey? Right? Um. This in lots of ways, right? The the the, the sexual practices of the Canaanite culture were always tripping the people of God up, and so what we live is a contrast to science. What we say we could say we love we live as the people of God now as loving dissidents to the culture at large. And we love you, but no, we can't go there. Sorry, it's just the way it is. You don't like that. Okay, sorry, this is the way it is. We are the people of God set apart by God. We're going to live in this culture. We're going to interact with this culture. But we're not going to say, we, by God's grace, say we don't want to be like the nations. That was toxic to the people of God. And every, every group in history of followers of Jesus said we really want to be like the nations, whether it's aligning ourselves with political power or aligning ourselves with the whims of cultural morality. Those groups disappear. They have disappeared every single generation. And then a new generation rises up and forgets that and says, this time will be different, and they disappear again. Right? It just happens. It just happens over and over. Okay. Um, so we want to be loving dissidents. And what I want to say is it's not just toxic for the people of God. It's toxic for the nations. Over and over in the Old Testament, in Exodus, Deuteronomy, then in the New Testament, 1 Peter, God says to his people, I'm making you different, that you would be a life-giving contrast to this world. If you're longing to be just like this world, there's no contrast. You could live in a way that shows that you are the foretaste of the coming kingdom, what it means to be full of Christ and love each other with a a sacrificial, deferential, honoring, life-laying-down love, and the nations could have the opportunity to say, I want to be part of that, because that's where the future is going. But instead, you're saying you want to be like the nations, and you're giving up. You're giving up your missional uh, witness to the nations. Okay, sorry, that was much longer than I intended. Number four. God will sometimes give us what we want in our rebellion to help us along for what we really need. I already mentioned that. Therefore, assessing our life by external circumstance, not the optimal way to do it. It's the disposition of the heart. Number five, no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what mess we've made of our own life, no matter if it's the consequences of our own sin or rebellion or the sin of other people against us, there is a way forward. In the midst of present trouble, however it arose, I think this is so encouraging. And we're going to end with this. If you turn back to 1 Samuel 12 again on the back of your page. Israel asked for a king because they were in rebellion. They didn't want to trust God, and they asked for a king who is, and most of them are destructive, God says, fine, you can have what you want. It's a mess of their own making. It's plan B or C or D. Check this out. 1 Samuel 12, 13, at the bottom of that passage. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has sat a king over you. Sorry. Verse 14. If you will fear the Lord, or revere him, and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Yes, this is a mess of your own making. Yes, this is a product of your own sin and unwillingness to trust me. Yes, it's plan B. But with me, plan B is now plan A. And you have but to trust me and to be faithful and to revere me and to hear my words and to respond to them. So um, I don't know where everybody is today. Maybe you've made a mess of your life. Okay. Maybe things are not what you would expect What you would hope. Maybe you are bearing the burden of others who sinned against you in profound ways, and it's very difficult. What's the way forward? Trust, hear his words, reverence, faithfulness. It will be well. Wherever you find yourself, the reality is God is willing. To give us good simply as we walk in faithfulness. Why is that? He gives, He gives, He gives, He gives, He gives, and He gives. This is the nature of our God. He's already given us the greatest gift of Himself. He does judge us, He is a king who judges us. What's the judgment? covered in my righteous robes. You are, we've already said it, you're forgiven, free, and restored. He does go out before us and fight our battles. He even fights by taking our own sin and our sluggishness and our slowness to trust and our willingness to distrust. I take it and fold it back in his intention and his plan to do us good and bring him glory. And he will do it over and over and over again. And that's part of the reason we go to the communion table every week and this week. It signifies a Savior who not only gave the best for us in himself, but stands in heaven, uh, uh, he sits in heaven as the enthroned one, and he gives and he gives and he gives grace through his spirit. If you're in Christ by faith, this table is open to you. If you are one who says, I want the kingship of Jesus over my life, this table is open for you. I'm going to pray and then ask you to invite you to come to the table. And we'll go to the table by going uh, through the outside. We'll grab a piece of bread and either white grape juice or red wine, bring it back to your seats, and we'll all partake together in a few minutes. Jesus, you are our king. And when we see it clearly with sobriety, we say, We want you to be king over us. I confess the Israel in me. That often wants to be like the nations. That wants to to trust what I can see instead of you who always deliver but I can't see. But Lord Jesus, you are so gracious and generous. You give and give and give again. So thank you that we can come to the table and celebrate that giving now in Christ's name.